When you hear the word radical, what comes to your mind? Now, my sister's husband, my brother-in-law, was raised in California. And so when I hear the word radical, I, I, I think of surfers because I hear him use that word that way all the time. That's how he was raised. Everything is radical. And uh, he used it kind of that 80s way, continues to use it that way. But most of the time in our culture, when we hear that word now, we think of something quite different, don't we? We might think of how it's used quite often to think of radical terrorists or radical ideologies. We might think of radical political agendas or radical causes and how those things are pushed before us by both mass media and social media. But those are just examples of how the word is used. They don't define the word fully. It's interesting, if you were to look up the word radical in the dictionary, what you would actually find. Of course, you would find what we just thought about a moment ago as one of the definitions. There's one definition that has thoroughgoing or extreme. And I guess that's how we most often think of the word now, with the way our world is. Sometimes we even use the words extreme and radical almost as, as synonyms. We use them interchangeably. But what's interesting is there's more definitions than just that. One of the other definitions of the word radical is this one. Going to the root of something, or going to the origin of something, or fundamental. In other words, the word radical can mean that you dig down into something to, to the very fundamental reason behind it. And maybe you heard it used this way, we're going to make a radical change, or this would make a radical difference. And the reason that's a proper use of the word is because you have to dig all the way down to the very root of the issue in order to figure out what kind of change this would make or what kind of difference this would make. Now, I didn't, we didn't come here this morning to study the you know, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, but I wanted to show those definitions because when you saw the title for this morning's lesson, you may have thought I was going for nothing more than shock value. By using the word radical in our sermon title, the right kind of radical, I wasn't going for shock value. I was going because of both of those definitions. Both of those things behind the word radical are fitting for what Jesus said in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. I want you to have your Bible open to that passage. If you have your Bible open in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, you'll have our outline right there in front of you. We're going to reference some other verses, but we're going to just go through that text this morning, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. It, is, it contains one of the more famous statements or one of the more famous sections of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But it's usually only remembered because the examples he gives that we'll study in a few moments seem radical. They seem extreme. But as we go through Matthew 5, 38 through 42, I want you to see that that other definition of radical also applies. Because if we could understand the very root, the very origin behind what Jesus is saying in this section, it would fundamentally change our world. It would fundamentally change our lives. It would fundamentally change our depth of faith. The teaching that Jesus is making in this section is dealing with our attitudes of getting back at someone. Your Bible may have a a heading that says something like retaliation or about retaliation. Jesus completely turns human nature over. And he makes us think about the level of patience we need to have even, even when we've been wronged. I'll tell you, this is one of the hardest teachings Jesus ever gave. To truly live out. 
Because this is a teaching for a day unlike today. Yeah, when, the day, when the sun's shining and everything seems to be going well, this is the teaching for when that's turned all the way over and I've been wronged by someone. As we go through this text this morning, I want you to notice four things. And we're just going to go through the text. As I said, if you have it there in front of you, you've got the outline. In the first place, Jesus talks about a misinterpretation of the old law. Already in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus had done this a number of times where he had used those things, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But quite often, when he went through those, you have heard it said's in this section, he's talking about things that were tradition. They weren't things that were found in the old law. However, this one is different. Because when Jesus said, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that is found in the old law. But it's the way it's interpreted that was wrong. Before we get into that, I want you to notice the purpose behind this sermon. Jesus was trying to announce his ministry. He's pointing out how far the religion of his day, especially among many religious leaders, had drifted from the true religion that God desired, even under the Old Testament law. There were, there were a lot of times where, where the forms or the actions were right, but the heart wasn't there. And additionally, a lot of people were following traditions alongside of, sometimes equal to, and in a few cases even above, the actual teaching of the Old Testament law. And so, in some cases of the sermon, Jesus had pointed out a a traditional saying that the people had said as if that were law, but this isn't one of those cases. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is found no less than three times in the books of the law of the Old Testament. Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25 says, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And you go, see, there it is. But that's only part of the law. I just read a couple of verses. In the context, it was dealing with a situation where a man strikes a woman who is with child and causes her harm, causes her physical pain. If he harms her, for example, and she loses a tooth, he was to have a tooth removed. But also in the context, it was dealing with trying cases where that happened, not just with open retaliation. Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20 said, If anyone injures a neighbor and he has done as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. By the way, it's interesting that in that text, it doesn't define the word neighbor at all. Leaving it open to anyone, as Jesus would illustrate in the story of the Good Samaritan. But the law was meant to help people show kindness to all. But again, if you notice the context of Leviticus 24, it's dealing with trying cases, not open retaliation. Deuteronomy 19.21 said, Your eye shall not pity, but it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. But again, this is not an open invitation. The context is dealing again with trials and how there was to be no partiality if someone was a witness or a judge, but the right punishment was to be administered in those situations. Now, you're going... Who cares? Why take the time to read all those occurrences that were hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus gives this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Why take the time to mention the context? And why call this a misinterpretation or a misinterpreted old law? If if you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5, glance back up a few verses to verses 17 and 18. 
In those verses, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come, the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a jot or tittle, the old King James has, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now with that in your mind, look back down in our context. Jesus is not saying that the phrase eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is not in the law. It's clearly there. It's there three times at least. However, the tradition of the Jews by the time Jesus came on the scene was so warped that they were using it as an excuse to always exact retaliation instead of at times where it was supposed to be used and that it was at times of trying cases. You see, those verses were meant for the judicial system. That eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth part was where juries, as we might call them, were to consider what they were to do in cases of extreme crime and extreme punishment. Arthur Pink, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, shares three purposes for that part of the law. He said it was there, one, to protect the weak against the strong, two, to serve as a warning against evildoers, and three, to prevent the judge from inflicting too severe a punishment upon those who were guilty of hurting others. But then he added this very good summary. He said, quote, as such, it was a just, merciful, and beneficial law. But human nature is strong. And people were just lifting those phrases, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and so forth. People were just lifting those phrases out and saying, see, that's in the law. I'm supposed to retaliate. If someone comes at me and and causes me this harm, I have the right to go right back at them and harm them in just the same way. If someone knocks out my tooth, I can knock out their tooth in retaliation, and so on and so forth. But that goes completely against the heart of God. It's a misinterpretation of the old law. And so to contrast with that, And to bring people back into the proper view of the law, Jesus in the second place gives a radical new attitude. Before you get to those famous examples, there's an overlooked phrase that plays an important role in this whole section. Verse 39 begins, Do not resist the one who is evil. Jesus said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye for a tooth for a tooth, but but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Who is evil. Now, don't let your eyes go on yet. Just let those words sink in. In complete contrast to eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, in complete contrast to just exacting revenge, continuing retaliation, Jesus says not to resist the one who is evil. And now I think you can begin to see why we choose the word radical for our title as well as for this point. How extreme does that seem? But what is Jesus actually saying? Well, first of all, some of you have a translation. That says, do not resist the one who is evil. Some have a translation that says, do not resist evil. Now, there's a sense in which we are to resist evil or the evil one, of course. We might think of Satan himself. James 4 and verse 7, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But I think Jesus is talking about human interaction. The context is not dealing with Satan specifically. He's talking about human interaction. When someone wrongs us and we want to exact retaliation... And that's where Romans 12, 21 comes into play. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This does not mean that we are to just let evil go on unopposed, to never stand against things that are wrong. Christians should be known for standing against those things that are wrong. However, the way in which we stand against those things speaks volumes. We're to never overcome evil with evil. Christians should not be known 
as those who are cruel, but instead we should be known as those who are good, who are humble, who are nonviolent. God never gives us the right to do evil in order to combat good. Now put yourself in the shoes or the sandals, I guess, of those who are listening to Jesus give this sermon. They have been taught eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You exact revenge. You exact retaliation. That's what the Old Testament law says. That's what you've been brought. And now this person comes along and says, no, you don't resist. You you may have even begun to squirm a little bit as he said that. Wait a minute. That that goes against what, what I've been raised. That goes against what I've been taught. And just in case it didn't sink in enough, Jesus goes even further by giving three amazing examples. This is the most famous part of this section. And we can get some idea of what Jesus meant by the examples. But I want to take a few moments to look at each one and to show you why Jesus chose these three examples he gives and why they would have hit these people right in the heart. If you ever think that I preach a sermon and it steps on your toes, just put yourself in their shoes as Jesus is getting ready to give these three examples. Example number one is probably the one that's most remembered because sadly it's quite often made fun of. Verse 39 ends, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You've probably seen that made fun of in movies or television shows where, of course, a, a Christian, a believer, is, is the, the brunt of the joke because they, oh, just go ahead and turn the other cheek. But this is no laughing matter at all. To be slapped in the face is degrading, demeaning. And even today, we talk about something that hurts us. We talk about it being a slap in the face. We still have that terminology But to the culture to whom Jesus was speaking, almost nothing was considered more degrading and embarrassing than for someone to slap you in the face. And often it was done in pure hatred, pure frustration. And if they wanted to make it even more demeaning, they would use the back of the hand because it wasn't even worth putting the palm of their hand against your face with the back of their hand in order to slap you. And so maybe you're in the marketplace and you're having a debate with someone and you've made a a good argument, you've made your statement, you're standing there in public and they just don't like the thing that you said and it's Instead of debating back, instead of coming up with something intelligent, they slap you across the face right there in front of other people. And your blood begins to boil. And you've been raised eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And as your hand begins to go back, the words of Jesus ring in your ears. When someone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn the other also. One writer said this, Don't slap them back, Jesus would say. Don't scream at them. Don't curse them under your breath. Instead, look the person straight in the eye and remind yourself that in spite of their arrogance and anger, they still matter to God. You see, this is about dignity. That person is stooped to a level of, I, I can't have an intelligent conversation, and so I'm just going to demean you. I'm just going to slap you across the face. And while you may get made fun of for being weak, being a wimp, you walk away with your dignity intact because you've still treated that other person as an actual person. And if you think that's hard enough, Jesus goes on. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It gets even more personal. 
Because now Jesus begins to talk about even the clothes that we wear. But, but this one's hard for us to grasp because of cultural differences. What's, what's the big deal with this one? The first one we kind of get, the third one we'll get in a moment. But this one is the most foreign to us because of our culture. So let me take a moment to explain why this would have hit these people directly in the stomach. In those days, most people wore an inner garment and they owned several, even if they were quite poor, that stayed quite close to the skin, a kind of undergarment, and then they wore an outer garment. Most people, even if they were poor, had maybe one and possibly two. And it's what we usually picture our mind's eye when we see Bible school curriculum from that day and time, for example, the the long robe. But it was far more than just an outer garment. Uh, They were typically loose-fitting. They were quite heavy. They were usually warm. In fact, for the common person, it served as an outer garment during the day, and quite often served as their blanket on a cool night. And so this outer garment quite literally could mean life or death on very cold or cool nights. And because of that, that outer garment was actually protected by law. You could not sue someone for that outer garment. And the laws even stated that if if someone put that outer garment as part of a, a deal, maybe a barter to get a job done or to trade for something, you could do that, but only for the course of that daytime. They had to give it back to you before the sun fell because it could literally mean death for that person that night if they didn't have that warm outer garment or something to use as a blanket in the cool evening breezes and cool nights of the day and time. So you could demand the inner garment of someone. I don't know why you would really want to. But you could demand the inner garment of someone suing or uh, for uh, barter. But you could not demand the outer garment. With that in mind, consider what Jesus is saying. He was saying that your desire to not retaliate should be so strong that you would even be willing to give up that which is protected by law and the other person could not take in order to make the situation right. The other person has already sued you. They've already made it something very personal, maybe taking that inner garment from you in the suit. But you want so much to make things right that you're willing to take off that outer garment and say, This is yours as well. Now, if you're starting to squirm a little bit, put yourself in the shoes of those people in that day and time. Where the one teaching them that day is basically saying, this is more important than life or death itself to make this right. And if you're squirming enough, Jesus goes on. Because now he's going to go more than even that and talk directly to their very identity If someone compels you to go with them one mile, you go with them too. Now to his listeners, this was probably the one that cut the deepest. It spoke to their very identity as Jews. One author sets the scene for us. Listen to this description. He says, In those days Israel was ruled by Rome. Governors were stationed throughout the empire, and soldiers occupied the various provinces. A Roman soldier had the legal right to approach any civilian at any time, day or night, and coerce him or her into service. The soldier could force the civilian to make meals, do laundry, provide lodging, or whatever else the soldier thought needed to be done. But the thing that they hated the most was, you carry my pack, you carry my baggage. Because that's going to disrupt your day, isn't it? By law, you had to carry it a mile. 
If a soldier came and said, you carry my pack. By law, you had to carry it for a mile. By the way, where do you think our mile markers on interstates came from? They had them in the Roman Empire because of this law. Because I'm going to carry that pack because I have to carry that pack. But when I see that stake out there, that's the mile marker, I might get a little bit smile on my face because I've only got to go that much further. And when I get there, I'm going to throw that pack to the ground and tell that soldier, you go on your not-so-merry way, and I'm going to hightail a mile back to what I was doing, whether it was a meal with my family, a night's sleep, or my job. And every step along the way, I'm being reminded I'm not in control. Rome is in charge. Because I'm carrying his pack, and he's just sauntering along for that mile. And you get to that mile marker. And the soldier fully expects you just to throw the pack down and maybe say a few things under your breath, or maybe not so under your breath, because the way some of us talk, right? And to head back to the house. But instead you take another step. And another step. And, and you, maybe you have to call back the soldier. Come on, we're, we're going another mile today. All the while remembering you're not in charge. All the while remembering, yes, your heritage may be Jewish, but Rome's in charge. You know, sometimes we talk about second-mile service. I'm not saying we should remove that terminology, but I'm not sure we really get at the depth of what Jesus was meaning here when he talked about going the second mile. This is not just making a visit on your lunch break. Oh, that's wonderful to do. Well, that was second-mile service. No, no, no. This is looking at an enemy and providing a service that's above and beyond the call of duty that would even shock the enemy that you're doing it, and doing so in a way that's just service. It's not under your breath. It's not gritting your teeth all the time. It's just going on with the service. Can you imagine sitting there on that day and hearing this? When you've been raised, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. If someone does something to you, you get back at them. No. No. Even if they do something that degrades you, you do nothing in return. Even if they sue you for something that's very personal, you offer something that could take your life. Even if they do something that cuts to your very identity, you keep serving. And with those burning in their ears, Jesus then gives the everyday application. Verse 41, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, again, we have to keep the context in mind. Remember, it was a failure to remember the context that led to the false teaching of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in the first place. That was supposed to be about trying cases, not just exacting uh, vengeance or taking retaliation. And if we aren't careful, we can take this verse, verse 41, out of its context and make it mean something Jesus never had in mind. This is not meant to be a, a universal principle. Sometimes someone would borrow from us or ask something from us, and we know that giving that person something would harm them, maybe even lead 
choosing to sin. The Bible never gives us that, that option. Keep in mind that this is in a context of still speaking about retaliation or the spirit we should have toward those who have harmed us or who have wronged us. What if I want to return eye for an eye, but that person has legitimate needs? I've got to be willing to give to that person. Absolutely, I do. A lot of you have, or maybe have heard of at least, the Gospel Advocate Commentaries. One of the best, in my opinion, is the one on Matthew. H. Leo Bowles wrote it. Listen to his words on this verse very carefully. He said, The spirit of retaliation is still before Jesus. If one has injured us, but is in need and should ask, we should not refuse to give that which is needed, because the one asking has done us an injury. To withhold from one who asks in need would be to retaliate. This is forbidden. Folks, this isn't easy. This is brutally difficult. And by the way, while the Jews of Jesus' day were taking eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, they were taking that out of context and making it allow for for unjust retaliation. Jesus was in perfect harmony with the Old Testament law by stating this everyday application. The Old Testament law even, as as much as there's thou shalt and thou shalt not, and we think, man, it was just so cruel and so checklist. No, there were constant reminders of the law, of the heart behind it. Deuteronomy 15 other places that you look out for your neighbor Even if that neighbor has harmed you, even if that neighbor owes a debt to you, you don't seek reasons to retaliate. And Jesus is saying, this is not a one-time principle. This is an everyday application. Because this is who we are as his followers. So is there any wonder why we chose the word radical for our sermon title? Yes, this teaching can seem extreme. It's the very opposite of human nature to to. To avoid retaliation, to, to actually seek the good of someone who's harmed us, to actually seek the good of someone who's insulted us, in that way it's radical. But think again about that other def- definition to go to the root of something or fundamental. What does that teaching given by Jesus all those centuries ago, what does that possibly have to do with our lives 2,000 years later? It's because Jesus already did it. It is the root of Christianity. I don't know if Peter had this text in mind or not when he wrote these words, but they certainly come to mind when I read them. Writing to Christians, he said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also, what? Suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit, guile, found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he slapped somebody. No, 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 no. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he talked under his breath and he lit. No, 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 no. When he was suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It is following the example of our Savior that when someone hurts me, when someone insults me, 
I don't retaliate eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I seek to serve. And I entrust myself to God. Is it easy? No. Maybe it's the spouse who who hates that you have a faith in God. And you walk out of the door every Sunday morning coming to worship or coming to Bible class only to hear that person week after week after week just, just jeer you because you're going to that old stupid church again. Stay the course and serve. It may not be faith. It may just be that your marriage is rocky. There's bickering. There's fussing. And maybe it's gotten almost to the point where you think the only way to make a day good is to actually win some kind of argument. This kind of radical starts serving and refuses to get into a bickering match or a shouting competition. It may be where you work. You're the only one, or one of very few anyway, who stand alone for true New Testament Christianity. And everything within you wants to just stand up in the middle of the office one day and just shout at people and just set those people straight. This kind of love just walks along each day doing what's right. Yes, hearing the jeers, but in love serving each other. It may be at school. Or you're made fun of because you're the only one who doesn't do certain things. You don't go out to drink on the weekends. You don't go to the dances. You actually befriend the one who's, who's the total outcast and nobody else cares about. And it hurts. It hurts to get made fun of each and every day. It feels like that slap across the face. But instead of firing back, you just keep serving. You just keep seeking ways to show grace. And folks, it may even be at church where a brother or sister in Christ has said something, or or, or they've done something, or they failed to do something, or there's been some decision that's made that you you disagree with, and you you just want to explode. You you want to write somebody up. you You want to destroy somebody's reputation. You want to write them up on Facebook. You want to spread stories all over town. You want to write an anonymous letter and just light that person up and just let people know what you think of that person. Instead, you show grace. You work things out in a peaceful manner because the harmony of the body of Christ is worth far more than that disagreement. And it may just be in society where we get so tired, so tired of being treated as if we're the outcasts. We're the ones on the wrong side of history. We're the fools. We're the idiots. We're the backward ones. And everything within us doesn't just want to oppose error. It wants to fight back. It wants to start calling names too. It wants to light people up. It wants to let... How dumb is what they believe? No. 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 When reviled, he did not revile in return and neither will his people in love serve one another do not 
be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. That's radical. And that will change the world. But it has to change your heart first. This morning, are you following the example of Jesus? The one who gave his life for you. Are you a Christian? Have you become a Christian by being immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, based upon your faith in him and your turning from sin and repentance, your confessing of his name as Lord and Savior? We'd love to help you do that this morning. Or maybe this morning as a Christian, maybe it's this area of life, maybe it's another, but you're struggling, you're, you know there's sin in your life, you need to be forgiven of, or you just need encouragement to do better. We'd love nothing more than to encourage you through prayer. If you'll respond, I'll be standing and sing to encourage you.